Welcome to the Building Books Podcast. I'm Glenn Yeffitz, publisher of Ben Bella Books, and on this podcast, we will talk about ideas, authors, and how publishing really works. Well, welcome, Ross. I am thrilled to have Ross Baird here for this podcast. Uh, Ross founded Village Capital in 2009. Uh, Village Capital, which Ross will talk a bit about, is a venture capital firm that takes a unique philosophy and approach to choosing the entrepreneurs they fund. Ross is the author of our book, The Innovation Blind Spot, Why We Back the Wrong Ideas and What to Do About It, which is coming out in paperback this month. Ross has worked with hundreds of entrepreneurs in over 50 countries and has visited over 100 cities worldwide in an effort to find new entrepreneurs and help the people supporting them. He has a master's in philosophy from the University of Oxford, where he was a Marshall Scholar, and a BA from the University of Virginia, where he was a Truman Scholar and a Jefferson Scholar. Welcome, Ross. Hey, Glenn. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. No, it's my pleasure. Um, well, let me start with, you know, one of the things I loved about your book is, is the big picture look that it takes at our economy and our country. And, you know, as you know, and you sort of talk about this in the book, you know, we're living in a country now where the majority of people feel like we've gone in the wrong direction, where over half of young adults uh, say they don't support capitalism. Well, what's gone wrong? I wrote this book not because I felt like I had something to say, but I wrote this book because I, I, I was noticing a story that wasn't being told. And I think the process of writing a book helped me try and, and figure out an answer. So I think at our very top line measures, the Dow Jones, the number of billion dollar tech companies, it appears that our economy is, is doing well. It's never, it's never been better. But when you go a bit deeper, um, the success is, is highly concentrated. Right. It's much more concentrated than it's been. So, you know, 50% of the new firms after the Great Recession were created in just five metro areas as one example. And so, you know, when you look at our... Um, when you look at our, our basic metrics, people in America should be optimistic about the direction we're headed. But, but geez, just look at our, our, our politics. That it's, it's very, very clear that, that people don't feel that way and wanted to, to spend some time figuring out why. Well, that's great. So let's back up a little bit. Tell me a bit about Village Capital and what it does. So Village Capital is a firm I founded about a decade ago. And we try to find and support and invest in entrepreneurs that have direct experience with the big problems that our country and our world are facing. And what we have always understood is the system by which entrepreneurs get access to capital and the opportunity to grow is, is also pretty concentrated. So if you um, are somebody who looks like me, who went to an Ivy League school, um, you probably know lots of people who have the resources to support you. Um, if you're in New Orleans or Nairobi or the wrong side of a wealthy city, it's, it's very, very difficult, no matter how smart you are, how hard you work to, to get off the ground. And so Village Capital, we think the people who can solve diabetes and opioid and other health crises are people who have direct experience with these crises, the people who um, are able to figure out how um, a rapidly changing planet can continue to feed itself are people who are from agriculture communities, for example. And so we, we try and find entrepreneurs who are, who are not in the mainstream and, and, and back them. And so your firm is really based on the idea that venture capitalism or venture capitalists as that community exists now isn't fully meeting the need. Completely. And I tell this story at the beginning of the book, but 
we support entrepreneurs. And the very first, one of the very first stories I tell is an entrepreneur named Jerry Namorin. Um, Jerry was an immigrant, uh, grew up in South Florida, and he saw his mom getting ripped off by check cashers and payday lenders. He first his family to go to college, goes to Wall Street to try and figure out how money works and figure out how to help people like his mom get out of debt. So he starts this company. He's living in Charlottesville, Virginia at the time. And he goes out and he tries to raise money to start his company. And Jerry was unsuccessful for a couple of years. And when I first met him, he had pitched several hundred different people on giving him a shot and completely struck out. I said, Jerry, what's the deal? And he says, you know, venture capitalists talk about pattern recognition all the time. Like, it's a good thing. Um, Let me break it down (laughs) for you. Um, I'm a black guy. I live in central Virginia. And I'm solving poor people's problems. I'm I'm 0 for 3. (laughs) Right. And we see tens of thousands of Jerry's. And so, you know, I think a lot of Economists assume that resources go to the best and most productive uses, but um, people are are highly biased to make decisions for for all kinds of reasons. And we think that the decision making process and where resources go tends to go to the people who are who are three for three. So, who are the kinds of people that tend to get funded? Well, I mean, look at the big tech companies in the Bay Area. It tends to be um, and like, I'm a white guy. I have nothing against white guys. Um, but it, it, it tends to be people who are largely go to one of a few schools, Ivy League schools, Stanford, et cetera, um, tend to be male, tend to be well-educated, tend to be from well-off backgrounds, tend to have access to family or friends' money to be able to, to start their company. Um, you know, it's whether it's your parents or your dorm room mate or whoever and, and and these are all these are all things that that it's very very hard to build a company and 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 people work incredibly hard but but there there are sometimes um built-in structural advantages where certain type of people have have more of a right or ability to compete than than others and also from a relatively few places yeah, so so eighty percent nearly of venture capital last year went to just three states: um, Massachusetts, New York, California. Steve Case, who wrote the forward to the book, has a whole initiative called Rise of the Rest, where where he's focusing on correcting those imbalances. But if you're in the middle of the country, you're not located near too many people who who have tremendous resources, and it's it's, it's much much harder to get a start. You argue that not only is this unfair, but it actually misses the most important opportunities. It seems like such an obvious point, but the people who are best placed to solve a problem um, are the people who have the most direct experience with the problem. So Village Capital, we've invested in a firm called Remedy, um, and it was founded by a woman named Lucy Ide in Atlanta. And she's an MD, PhD, who's developed um, what is now the fastest growing diabetes management platform in our country. So we spend 4% of our GDP in America on just treating diabetes. And these are mostly low and middle income populations, um, low and middle income populations who are chronically sick. And Lucy was a MD, PhD in Atlanta who had a ton of experience treating diabetes patients. And she develops this solution. So she started this company around the same time um, a Silicon Valley entrepreneur started the company Theranos, um, which raised 
$700 million. Um, wow. Started by a woman named Elizabeth Holmes who went to Stanford, um, who was not an MD, PhD, who had not spent a lot of time out in communities working on health, but came up with an idea that you could pick your prick your finger and do a blood test. And it seemed so easy and it seemed too good to be true. And it was. It turns out Theranos was um, a fraudulent company, but they raised $700 million because famous people in Silicon Valley were backing it. It took Lucy and Remedy five entire years to get off the ground because she couldn't find the resources to back her idea. Finally, you know, and we were part of this at Village Capital, she scraped together some seed money. She didn't take a salary for a long time. Finally, after years and going through the right directions and, and doing the clinical trials that Theranos never did, um, they, they, they saw results that were evidence-based and very promising. Um, and they just, um, to, they just recently got a lead investment from Lilly and is now the leading technology powering Lilly's diabetes management platform for the whole country. It's taken Lucy almost 10 years to get off the ground because she wasn't in the mainstream. She had the right idea and the right insight and now it's working. But it, it you know, she almost gave up a couple dozen times. And imagine how much faster and easier and more seamless the idea would be if, if she was able to access the kind of resources that, that Theranos was. And there are so many other people who don't even get on the radar. I mean, Lucy is one of the lucky ones who has been able to get a shot. So, so we think that if we care about problems, whether it's climate or inequality or, or opioids, I mean, the things we read in the paper every day, there are people who are on the ground who know how to solve the problem and have ideas but don't have, don't have opportunity. One of the things that fascinates me is not only are you trying to fund a different sort of person, your process for deciding who gets funding is also very unique. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So part of my inspiration for Village Capital, I worked in India for a microfinance bank. If you don't know anything about microfinance, it's a, one of the most transformative innovations we've seen in the last 30 years in terms of helping entrepreneurs access opportunities. So microfinance bank and emerging markets make small handshake loans of you know a couple hundred dollars to mostly women who live in rural areas. Um, and it seems like a tiny thing, but they're about $30 billion invested each year in these small loans. And there's nearly 100% repayment. And the reason why it works. Um, one of the uh, creators of the microfinance industry, Muhammad Yunus, won a Nobel Prize for this. The reason why it works is the decision-making over which entrepreneurs get investment isn't made in conference rooms in London or Paris or New York. It's actually made in the village. So think think of a village in India with a bunch of small entrepreneurs trying to get the, the, the ball off the ground, um, trying to get their idea off the ground. Um, the, the, the entrepreneurs in the village essentially select who gets a loan. They're best placed uh, to solve it. The inspiration for Village Capital was I saw a bunch of entrepreneurs like Jerry and Lucy, and I saw them being very far apart from investors like the people who are in New York and San Francisco. And one of the issues that we see in venture capital America is the people making decisions don't reflect very often the entrepreneurs in the country. So 2% of people who receive venture capital are women. 1% of people who receive venture capital are people of color. The decision makers are very similar. 2% of partners at venture firms are women. 1% of partners are people of color. So I saw a big gap between 
the people out there doing the work and the people making decisions in firms. And so I took this inspiration from microfinance, which is people close to the problem, people in the community are best place to make investment decisions. Um, that methodology is called the village bank in microfinance. Village bank plus venture capital equals village capital. Um, that was where the name came okay. from. And we developed a process where entrepreneurs... Um, in our pipeline are the ones making decisions. And what we've seen is when you put decision-making power in the hands of different people, you get different results. So 40% of our investments have been in women. Um, 26% have been in people of color. Um, almost 90% have been outside the three states that get otherwise 80% of venture financing. Um, and the companies are outperforming comparable portfolios that are that are highly concentrated. So I think changing who's in a position to make decisions can make make a big difference and can, can give you better results. That's brilliant. But I have to think that it was a bit of a gulp to almost take, you know, as the as the founder of Village Capital, you're taking these decisions out of your own hands and distributing them that had to be challenging in some level. It really is. I mean, I mean, power, power is a funny thing. And if and if we say to you as an investor, we are going to invest money that you are responsible for, um, but you're not actually going to get to pick where the money goes. That's a that's a pretty that's a pretty tough sell for some people. <laughs> right. But see, you really you really have to be a believer in entrepreneurs, like, and you have to believe that that the people building businesses will have good insights. And we also have to structure a process. I write about this in the book, but. It sounds like a simple and straightforward process today. We're proud of the results, but there were a number of programs and investments that we learned the hard way from. So for example, very early on, um, we didn't have a structured process and sometimes it would be more of a popularity contest and the best liked entrepreneur would get investment or do well. And sometimes it would be a bit of a pity thing. It'd be like, hey, um, like, hey, Glenn is a great guy. We love him. If we don't pick him for this investment, he's not going to raise money out there. It's like we should give him an I'm sorry investment. Right, and right. those didn't work as intended. So we had to get very intentional and structured about the process. And now we've made almost 100 investments and the process is very clear and structured. And we actually have 30 affiliate partners all around the world who are using this process to make investments now. But we, you know, we, learned, we learned by iterating what works and doesn't. Now, uh, your book is called The Innovation Blind Spot, and you say there's actually three blind spots. Uh, the first mm -hmm. is how we invest. The second is where and who we invest in. And the third is why we invest. Talk me through that. Yeah. So when I started Village Capital, I wanted to invest in companies like Remedy or like Jerry's company, Lend Street, that are building good businesses, but also solving systemic social problems. And it was it, and I was seeing a lot of great ideas on the ground. When I started trying to raise money for my company, I would talk to different people. And this one guy who was a very successful entrepreneur, had a very active charitable foundation, said, young man, uh, this is really interesting. Uh, love what you're doing. But I got two pockets. With one pocket, I make as much money as I can. And with the other pocket... I give it all away. What pocket are you asking me for here? And I said, well, you know, that actually clarified. I said, respectfully, sir, I see a bit differently. I think that businesses that have a core mission driving them, you know, founders are motivated, investors are motivated, team members are motivated. It's a, it's a, um, 
it, it, I, I see the world, everything's in one pocket. You can't separate what you do and what you care about. Right. Um, and he didn't invest. He didn't get, he didn't get it. But, and I, and I think most of the world, um, sees the world in two pockets. You know, if this is a do good thing, it must be a nonprofit or it must be the job of the government. Um, and if it is a business, the, the role of the business is not to do anything but make money. A lot of, a lot of people feel that way, but increasingly, I'm seeing a one-pocket world where people starting companies want to do something positive. People want to work for companies that reflect their values. Um, there's there's a blurring of the lines between business and philanthropy that is really important and, and definitely the way the world is going. You know, it's funny because the people that you would think are the biggest believers in the power of business and the power of capitalism to solve problems are you know, put up a false barrier between the kinds of problems that capitalism can solve. When in fact, you know, maybe capitalism is the most powerful force for solving the problems we associate with nonprofits. Potentially. I mean, if you look at the numbers, and I talk about this in the book, um, add together the value of all of the charitable foundations in the world. Do you know how much it is? You can just guess. About a trillion. Okay. If you add together all of the public companies' value in the world, it's um, well over a hundred trillion, right? Um, approaching two hundred trillion. Um, if you add up all of the capitalist dollars in the world and make that the size of the Statue of Liberty, the philanthropic dollars in the world are a size of a grasshopper. So, <laughs> right. There are wonderful nonprofits. Philanthropy plays a role. Like, if, you know, in a one-pocket world, philanthropy plays a role, government plays a role, c- capitalism plays a role. But if we assume that government and philanthropy need to clean up the problems that capitalism, it's not its job to solve, it is a massively losing battle. One thing I was, uh, I- I'd love to get your opinion about it. I was just thinking about this the other day. You know, venture capitalists are, you know, famous for, you know, funding a young entrepreneur um, cause they like their, their concept. Um, but then when the business gets to a certain level, they're like, okay, you need to leave and we're going to put in professional management. But when you talk about, you know, you name in your book, you know, five of the six most valuable companies in the world, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, and then Apple, which kind of did a U-turn on this, but basically they all achieve greatness under the leadership of their founders. Mm-hmm. So do VCs have that idea wrong? I think so. I mean, in in many, and I've probably heard a thousand business plan competitions, pitches, et cetera, just, you know, just over the last 10 years, probably more than that. Um, And a very frequent question you hear is, quote unquote, what's your exit strategy? Companies today, when they're starting finance, folks will say, well, well, what's your exit strategy? Which basically means, who are you going to sell to? And when... Steve Jobs was starting Apple. He did not say, oh, my exit strategy is to one day sell to IBM. Um, so I don't want to compete with IBM. And I, and I don't think that, I don't think that our, our finance world looks at it that way. And we have Google, Facebook, Apple, Amazon. We have very, very um, powerful companies. And the assumption is if you can't figure out how to get acquired by them, you're just not worth investing in. I, I, I think... If I'm an entrepreneur to say, I want to build a business and I want it to be a 30, 50, 100 year business, that's actually an unattractive thing to tell a venture capitalist, which is, which is, which is crazy. And you've traveled 
all around the world talking to entrepreneurs. What have you learned doing that? Oh, so much. I mean, I would say that the biggest thing is there are just so many people out there that want the opportunity to have control of their own destiny. I mean, I, I think that, you know, it's so hard to start a business and it's so hard to get up there and make payroll and compete every day. But I think one of the reasons why most people feel like life is on the wrong track um, in politics or in business is, 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 is a lack of control. You know, the big companies are going to do what they're going to do and there's nothing we can do about it. And, you know, the political parties are terrible and, and this person's going to do what they're going to do and there's nothing we can do about it. And I, I think um, a desire for control of what happens in a, your community or an industry that you care about or just, just being able to control your own life and say, listen, I'd love to be, a, you know, I don't mind working till midnight every night, but I'd love to be free from five to seven to pick my kid up to school and have dinner. And, and, and I can't do that if I'm working in a, in a faceless bureaucracy. Like they, you hear these stories over and over again, but the desire for people to be able to control their own destiny is just such a powerful and, and positive thing. No, no question. And as an entrepreneur myself, you know, I, I've been through it uh, myself and there's definitely downsides to having your own business, but you know, having the sense of control of your own destiny really makes a lot of things worth it. There's no question about that. So, but, you know, most of us aren't VCs and we aren't starting up new businesses. Uh, we're working within companies, you know, either large or small. Do you have any lessons from the book that are for those folks? Whether or not you are the founder of your own business, I think the lessons are the same. So one of the things that is true in any instance is people who have experience with a problem are best placed to be able to solve a problem. And I think that's true about your employees, your coworkers, your office, whether, whether or not you run your own company. So I'll give you an example. Um, I grew up and I was fortunate enough. Uh, there was a job I really wanted um, in between my junior and senior year of high school. And it was an un awesome unpaid internship. And I was fortunate enough to be in a family where, you know, because I had a good job, it was prestigious and it looked good on my college applications, or whatever. I, I didn't need to make money that summer because I right. had a great internship. One of the things, you know, us Village Capital being a one pocket firm, we actually found a lot of people willing to be unpaid interns for us um, and do a lot of work. And initially, you know, as a startup, watching capital expenses, et cetera, I was like, this is great. We can get really amazing people willing to work for free because our, our work is so inspiring. Um, then uh, I brought on a team member and she grew up homeless in and out of foster care in Berkeley, California. And now she's a, a partner, uh, African-American woman partner at a um, major San Francisco Bay Area investor. And she did an amazing job um, running our programs for a couple of years. And I said something about our internship. And she said, you know, I would have killed to work at Village Capital when I was in high school or college. Um, but I had to make money. I had to go, you know, and there are people like me who have to, you know, turn down the amazing internship with Village Capital because it's unpaid and instead work at Arby's because they'll pay you $8 an hour. And we need to pay our interns because we'll be able to get better and more diverse people. And so, you know, 
thinking about who is in the room making decisions and making sure that the people in the room have experience with the problem you're trying to solve is really, really important. And so I think that no matter where you are, whether you're in a big company, small business, et cetera, what are the biggest problems you care about solving? Do you have direct experience with those problems? And if not, who can you get in the room and whose voice can you get at the table? Because you'll, you'll, you'll be much more likely to succeed. I think there's a, there's a couple of great lessons in that. And, and, you know, one of which obviously, just as you said, is, you know, when you are, you know, building, you know, hiring people into your organization, when you're choosing who to work with, it's so easy to go to the usual suspects and the folks that are different from the folks you typically bring on, bring something different, some knowledge base and some experience that, you know, will prove to be valuable Mm-hmm. In a way that mm-hmm. uh, you know the usual suspects won't necessarily have. So no, I, I really like that. So let's say you're a potential entrepreneur with a great idea, but you're in the blind spot. You know, you're in New Orleans or you're in Detroit. Uh, you know, you don't have a rich family. What do you do? I think that there. Well, I tell a story in the book. There's an entrepreneur we've invested in named Clarence Buffet, who has a company called Upsy. And Upsy is a warranty transparency company. And it's and it's a real blind spot business. Clarence grew up with a single mom, put himself through community college, and grew up uh, with a lower middle class, largely African-American social network. And he saw most everybody he knew buying warranties. Uh, and he saw people getting ripped off of warranties. Um, a lot of the big box retailers make a significant other profit margin off of warranties. And poorer people are much more likely to buy warranties than wealthier people. So Clarence starts this company, Upsea. And when he starts pitching, he realizes that the average venture capitalist has a different experience than he is. Like he, he tells an early story where he's pitching his company and... Uh, the the venture capitalist is like, well, nobody buys warranties. I mean, when I break my iPhone, I just buy a new one. It's (laughs) so much simpler. And Clarence is like, well, you can, but for a lot of people, spending a thousand bucks out of pocket for a new phone is just not not gonna work. But he ended up getting a potential commitment from a from a well-known investment firm. And in their due diligence, they figured out that when Clarence was 17 years old, he had gotten a police citation for getting into a fight. And it was, he's now in his late 30s and lives in suburban Minnesota and has two kids. And he is just flabbergasted. And they say, we're really sorry. We can't invest in someone with a criminal record. And part of me is thinking, you know, if I got a police citation um, as with two educated parents, um, like, they probably would have figured out for 17-year-old me to like how to not have it stay on my record. And, and that is just, just come from very different backgrounds. Um, so we were, um, we were pretty, so, the, so they ended up deciding not to invest and we were pretty discouraged. But there was another guy who's an a African-American active uh, venture capitalist and he talked to Clarence and he's like, you know, first of all, that's, that's really unfortunate. But second of all, man, Clarence, you are terrible at telling your story. That shouldn't have been a surprise to them. If they they didn't know that you grew up poor, like you should have said, you know, I grew up poor. In fact, you know, I was in and out of trouble as a teenager, but then I figured it out. And then, you know, now I'm running this successful business. Like there's a there's a version of that story, Clarence, that could have ended up with 
you being rags to riches. And then all these venture capitalists now brag about this like rags to riches, great entrepreneur that they gave a shot to. I think that there are disadvantages, certainly, that come from being in a blind spot. But I think you have to pay attention to the parts of your story that are different and interesting. And and you can almost turn your disadvantage on ahead if you if you figure out if you figure out the right way to tell your story, you you can get on people's radar. You know, I love the fact that, you know, you've taken the initiative, you've seen this issue, you formed Village Capital to address it. Um, and it's, you know, very entrepreneurial and very free market. But it, does the government have a role to play in helping to address some of these issues of blind spots? Oh, for sure. Um, and over the last over the last year, I've been uh, working on a fellowship with the Kauffman Foundation, which is the largest backer of entrepreneurial initiatives in the world. And we've been looking at um, entrepreneurs accessing capital. And I think a lot of people, when they think about the role of government with business, it jumps straight towards funding businesses. Oh, the government should set up a venture capital fund or whatever. One of the things that we realized in looking at all the issues and the things that government has done is uh, direct funding of businesses when the government has done that is almost never almost never moves the needle. Um, government tends to not be very good at picking specific winners and losers in businesses. Um, what the government can do is set up infrastructure and an enabling environment for businesses. So for example, if you say, Every business ought to have the right to compete. What are the things that go into that? One is is infrastructure. Um, if there are all these ideas and thoughts that, hey, wouldn't it be great if Charleston, West Virginia could be a place where people um, outsource computer work? That would be great. Um, there are huge broadband problems in West Virginia today. And there are people who could be great entrepreneurs, but because of the speed of internet in West Virginia, aren't able to do so. And there are, and there are certain policies and regulations that, that give different people different preferences on, on the internet. So that, that's one thing. I think another thing is just broadly thinking about economic development. Um, economic development today is very top-down. And in the book I write about, I do an analysis of all of the funding that has gone into stadiums. Whenever the, a, a city builds a big sports stadium, say, this is great, it's going to create all these jobs. Um, Stadiums very rarely uh, justify taxpayer expense. They're big. Um, things like Amazon HQ2, um, which, you know, there's a national competition. Who's going to get Amazon's headquarters? The incentives for headquarters like that very rarely add up to being a good deal for the taxpayer. But there actually is very good return on investment in things that back entrepreneurs, back small businesses. It's done much less frequently because you don't get to do a big ribbon cutting right. when you've enabled this when you've enabled five, you know, when, you, when you've enabled 10,000 companies to create five jobs each, you can't do a big press release, but you get one company to do 50,000 jobs. You can, you can do a big press release and you get a lot more credit. So the, the government, I'd like to see economic development in government shift from a top down stadiums and big corporate headquarters, which are almost always bad deals to bottom up building infrastructure so that so that um, entrepreneurs can can compete. That's and, and we are seeing some places do that very well already. Now, um, tell me why you decided to write this book. I have a quote in the book from historian Shelby Foote, where he says people shouldn't write a book because they think they've got something to say. People should write a book because they 
want to find out an answer and they want to share the journey. I just noticed so many things. Dominance of big cities relative to small and medium-sized ones, um, concentration of power in financial services firms, um, increasingly the big is beating the small. And I, I, I didn't, it, there was a very coherent story to me, but I, I didn't see it told. And I wanted to get what the story was doing and I wanted to share the journey with other people. So I wanted to put into language what is going on in our country at this moment in time and try and diagnose what the actual problem is and try and propose some solutions. And I, and I think the actual problem goes back to the title, the innovation blind spot. Um, people who are in positions of power and authority are missing, missing a lot. And it's not because I think people are doing intentionally bad things. It's, it's, it's because people just don't know. And I think by introducing different voices, different places, different experiences into the conversations, we, we can eliminate a lot of these blind spots. Now, you've, I'm sure, got a million things that you have to get done each day. Somehow you managed to get this book written. What process did you use to produce the book? And, and I'll, I'll just say for the record, you know, it came in uh, very strong. Oh, well, tell thanks. me about, <laughs> no, thank you. Tell me about uh, your process. I love writing and I've written a lot of blog posts and different different observations. I mean, I, I met early with a guy who's a writer for The New Yorker whose work I really admire. And he said, you know, there's a difference between a newspaper article, a magazine article, and a book. And when I started, you know, the thing I just said, you know, there are all these great entrepreneurs like Jerry Namoran, um, and you're not paying attention to them. He's like, that's a newspaper article. Um, we kind of get the point. And the worst books are, you know, the first paragraph, you could basically like not read the rest of the book and figure it right. out. So the problem is the innovation blind spot. What are the blind spots? Like, and spend some time on each of them and develop a narrative around each of them. So I spend a lot of um, the time on how people make decisions, how power structures work and looking at, Implicit bias in decision making. Looking at why venture capital is structured the way the way it is. Um, I, I did some research on the history of venture capital for the book and figured out that it was um, actually the structure we use today is related to 19th century whaling. It was really oh, the wow. first time that people built funds to invest in other people's stuff. And the original idea of whaling is you know most whaling expeditions are unsuccessful, but a few are massively successful. So let's um, Let's build this very high risk, high return kind of structure, and that that still dominates the, the the discourse today. I think in sometimes unhelpful ways. So, going into that, and then going into place, you know, why is things have never been better in New York or LA, but but places like Roanoke, Virginia, are are really struggling? Why is that? And so that was almost a whole separate story or a whole separate magazine article. And then going into this this one pocket thinking idea, which I've been in the middle of for the last 10 years, that was a whole separate line of thought. And they're, they're related and they're almost like nesting dolls. You know, it's like the reason why people don't care about other, the reason why, you know, famous universities and 
policymakers and corporate boards don't care as much about places like Roanoke, Virginia, as they do New York City, is they don't live in Roanoke. They don't know people from Roanoke, right. people making decisions. So, so they're they're all related. Um, but I think I think the process of writing the book was trying to figure out. Um, is this problem we have a big problem or a small problem? Is it a big enough problem to tell a story about? Um, and is there enough substance to actually propose what what might work? Now, your book came out uh, a year ago, and this month we're bringing out the paperback. Have you had any reactions to your to the paper, to the release of the hardcover? Oh, sure. I mean, I started writing the book before Donald Trump got elected, and I think that the timing of the Trump campaign and afterwards, you know, all of the New York Times and Washington Post reporters who all of a sudden are spending lots of time in diners in rural Pennsylvania trying to talk to, you know, real people about their feelings. Like there, there, there is a lot of media that came out after the Trump election that was um, speaking to some of the questions that that are raised in the book. And then there's, there's been a lot in the technology and the entrepreneurship world around gender bias and racial bias and some of the things that that we've been speaking about were are really timely. So I think people have felt that it's been the book has been relevant and timely and has spoken to a lot of issues that have been very much in 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 the mainstream since since the book came out. Um I think, you know, I did I did probably 20 different events. One of the things that I noticed was the events in like San Francisco, New York were, were good and people liked it. But actually the best attended events that I did were in places like Bend, Oregon or Roanoke, Virginia, places that are Kansas City, Missouri, places where there are really spectacular things going on, I think, but are, are maybe not quite on the radar of, of the press or the media. And so I, I saw the message of the book Um resonate most with people who felt like they're in a blind spot. Oh, that makes total sense. All right. So for folks who want to learn more about you, learn more about your business, um, are you on social media? Is there any place to point them? I am. I am uh, at Ross Baird, R-O-S-S-B-A-I-R-D on social media. And you can see the link to the book on there. Um, we, If you've already bought it, thank you. If you... Uh, you can also buy the paperback for a friend. Um, if you haven't bought it, I, I hope you consider reading it. We can go into a lot more detail. Village Capital, the firm that I started and is the meat for a lot of the stories and experiences in the book, we're at vilcap.com. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Russ. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Building Books podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on iTunes or wherever you happen to listen to it or share it on social media. If you're an author who wants to submit a proposal or pitch to Ben Bella Books, please go to benbellabooks.com, click on the Four Perspective Authors button, and I'll lead you through a little form that makes it real easy to submit to us. Thank you.